0: Haggai 2, in the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai saying. Now let's pause right here. Whenever in the Old Testament you're reading, and the word of the Lord came, that means what is to follow is actually the words of God. If you have one of the sword prophecy study Bibles that has the red letter edition in the Old Testament, you'll see that most of the verses that we're getting ready to read are actually in red. So take in with you that this is Haggai being the voice of God. He is speaking God's words to the people. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedech, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you? that saw this house in her first glory. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not, for thus saith the Lord of hosts. Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Tonight I want us to look at three different aspects of what God is giving the children of Israel and look at a message entitled Greater Glory. Greater Glory, let's pray. Lord, we love you. And again tonight we come into your presence. And Lord, we ask you for the liberty to preach what you've put on our hearts. God, I ask that you would bind distraction and God give us just a few moments to focus our hearts and our minds yet again on the Word of God. Lord, no doubt in this audience, and Father, the ones that are worshiping online, there are people who are tired, people who are weary from their week of work and labor. God, there's people here with the distractions of life, God, that are just rushing their heart and rushing their mind. But Lord, I pray that you would push back distraction, that you would bind the strong men, and Lord, that there would be an opportunity for our hearts to be encouraged yet again from your word. We love you. We thank you for all that we've experienced this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So let's back up and give a little context into what we're looking at here in Haggai. The children of Israel have been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And in this 70 years of captivity... A lot of things have changed. The Persians are now in control. They're in charge. The Persians have kicked out the Babylonians. A lot of what you're seeing in Haggai, you can find the uh, parallel or you can find the time either before or after in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the group of people, the remnant of Israelites, that the Persians, not the Babylonians, but the Persians, allowed to come back to Jerusalem. This was a group that were concerned with getting back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, and repatriating Jerusalem. Haggai chapter 1 is nothing more than a group of people who have come home. And if you look at time and history correctly, in my opinion, in Haggai chapter 1, there's been about 16 or 20 years that's passed. These people have worked, they have labored, but as they have worked and as they have labored, even though they had a good intention, a good motivation to leave Babylon in the first place, remember, this group could have stayed and many did. Life in Babylon was comfortable. There was a lot of culture. There was a lot of development. There was not going to be for them in Babylon a lot of labor. But this group of about 50,000 Jews said, you know what? It's comfortable in Babylon, but this is not where I belong. I belong in Jerusalem. The city lay in waste and we must go back and rebuild and repatriate and rebuild the walls and see that the temple is brought back to its former glory. And in Haggai 1, you see that happen. But along the journey, they get weary. They're working, they're laboring, they get hot, they get tired. And then God has to remind them on why they left Babylon in the first place. And in Haggai 1, you'll see God asks them to do something that I think all of us can do on every day, is to consider your ways. There's multiple places in chapter 1, verse number 5, verse number 7. Consider your ways. And what God is saying to this remnant, this group of people is, you've been distracted with building your own house. You're more concerned with the condition and the luxury of your own residence And God's house lies in waste. Now, I can tell by scripture that these people are a mature group of people. This is the cream of the crop in my heart, this 50,000 people. Because this is one of the few places in the Old Testament that you will see God rebuke and you'll see God want to move and change the way they're living. And this group changed the way they were living and obeyed God without having to have their woodshed moment. God said that he would stay the dew and stay the corn and that there would be great famine if they did not listen. But we see that this group of people with Joshua and Zerubbabel and with Haggai, they obey God. And so they get to work considering their way and their job is to rebuild the temple that has been destroyed. And as they're working and as they're doing what God has told them to do, something now in Haggai 2 comes up in a rhetorical question from God. What does it mean or what could it imply when God has his prophet Haggai say something or ask questions that are in rhetorical of nature? It's a rhetorical question. Why would God ask someone a rhetorical question? Because he already knows the answer. That means that as they're building the house, they've got refocused, they're back on track, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're not focusing on just their homes and their houses, but now they are working and laboring together to rebuild the temple. And what does the temple mean then? It means that they can be in God's presence. It was all about being in the glory of God. Remember, Jesus has not come. The Shekinah glory The opportunity to live with their temple back intact that's the motivation so Haggai won the rebuke the correction they get back on track and now they're working on the temple and God asks these rhetorical questions these people are prone to human emotion and expectations not being met just like you and me so in these three rhetorical questions God already knows the answers look at the questions He asked in verse number 3 of Haggai 2, Who is left among you? Who is left among you? It's been 70 years since they have been in captivity. The temple has been destroyed. Maybe even Haggai himself has seen this. But who is left among you? There would be just a few who had seen the glory and the grandeur of Solomon's temple before its destruction. So these people have seen that temple be what it needs to be. They've seen the gold and they've seen the instruments and they've seen the cloud of Shekinah glory. They know what it is for the temple to be in its right place and in its right manner. They are familiar, just a few of them. And he asks, who is left among you? And then he asks, how do you see it now? Remember, it's been destroyed. They do not have all of the instruments and all the tools and all the things that Solomon's temple would have had. This would have been a remodel or a reconstruction, a work in progress, the stones being overturned. Now everything has to be rebuilt. There's been a destruction. There's been a force that has come through and destroyed their place of worship. And he says, how do you see it now? It would be like you showing up on Sunday morning for worship and we've had a fire. Or someone's come through and vandalized all the chairs and the screens are out and the cross has been pulled down. And terrible things have happened to the space in which we worship. For them it was even much more than that. It was the presence of God being in his presence, worshiping him in the temple. And then he says, is it not in your eyes in comparison? Haggai drew attention to the fact that this temple that they are currently working on is inferior to Solomon's temple. I know it's not the same. I know it doesn't look the same. It doesn't have the same feeling of glory. You don't have as much passion. You're not as excited as you were when Solomon's temple was upright and in its glory and it's in, and it's, in, in its heyday. But what's happening here is these people have been corrected yet again. They're back on track, working and building this temple. And now God hears the grumblings and the moanings of their heart. Sometimes when God corrects us, we're easy to pull back and get back in line. But then we'll be back in where we need to be, doing what we need to be doing. And if we're not careful, our hearts will begin to grumble, we'll begin to complain. We'll look at things differently after correction. And that's exactly what's happening here in these people's hearts. And God knows it. I can't imagine what it has been to be in captivity for 70 years. You get a new boss, basically, that's in charge of you. The Persians kick out the Babylonians. The Persians say, hey, if you want to go, we don't care, go. So you go and you get there and you've worked 16 years and you messed up and God had to correct you and now you're working on this temple that God corrected you and told you you had to do. Don't be, build, don't be building your house. Get, get to get the business building my house. And now as they work, they're seeing what it is. There's a lot more work than we thought there would have to be done. This place has really been destroyed. There has been a big problem here. And as they rebuild, they get discouraged. In verse number four, God tells them, yet now be strong. And notice he separates who he told to be strong. Not only did he tell Zerubbabel, but he told Joshua and he told the people. God's reminding even the leadership. Don't you give up, don't you lose sight. Be strong now. The same God, the same Holy Spirit The same ability that that God has, the same power, be strong. Keep doing what I've put in your heart. It's an important time in the history of Israel. and It's an important decision in the hearts of this remnant of people. Again, you've got to take with you in the story that these people left comfortable lives in Babylon to be here laboring. And now that they're there, God has great expectation for them. There's three things I want you to see in this story, in this history of Israel. Three perspectives. The first I want you to pay attention to, an individual perspective. And I want us to draw some similarities to this moment that God corrects this remnant yet again. And I want us to see in this correction and in this story some of God's character and how he works and how he responds towards his children. You see, the God that talked to these children of Israel, this remnant, Brother Bill, is the same God that you and I deal with on a daily basis. This is the same God. His character, his ways, the way he operates, his holiness, his capacity, his capability, none of that has changed since this day. Now, the cross of Calvary has come, and redemption is different. Redemptive history has been set. And behind me is a big white cross to symbolize what happened on the cross. But even in the cross and its accomplishment, it does not change the nature or the character of God. He is still God, exactly as you find him, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. That is our God. He is never changing, He is immovable. But I see in this story an individual perspective, and it has to do with our walk with God, our personal walk with God. If you have a personal walk with God, raise your hand. Almost everybody in the building. Praise the Lord. So if you have a personal walk with God, who is involved in that relationship? It's Sunday night. Yell it out from the floor. Who's involved in the relationship? You and God, praise the Lord, you and God are involved in that relationship. It's not you and your husband and God. Now, don't get me wrong and don't misunderstand. There are spaces and there are places where you and your husband or you and your wife and God have communion and you have conversation. But at the end of the day, your husband can't be saved for you. Your wife can't be saved for you. It's a personal walk it's a walk of faith. And as we talked about this morning, we are saved, we are born again, we have a walk of faith. Jesus is lord of our lives. But at the end of the day when I lay myself in bed at night, I am putting in that bed a bag of bones that's attached to imperfect flesh. A personal walk means that I'm involved and I am imperfect I still have instances where I put my big size 15 boot in my mouth because I am a human being. And until I get home to heaven, Coop, I will not understand what sinless perfection is. But one day it's coming. And in this walk of faith, in this life, there are going to be times and there are going to be places where you may fall into a snare or a trap that Satan has set for you. Or yourself may attack your spiritual man. Whatever you commit petty sin against God, not only are you are committing it against God, but you're sinning against the saved part of who you are, the new man on the inside. That is a war. That is a struggle. And it's a personal issue. And God gives someone a... Great spiritual victory. You watch it happen. You see them pray. You see them fast. You see them cry. You see them mourn. God, do this thing. God, build this life. Build this relationship. Change this situation. You'll watch it happen. And now because of the mishap, the snare, things have begun to change in your personal walk with God. Something that used to make you get a butterfly. Oh my goodness, somebody got saved. Boy, Macy, God used her this morning. Praise the Lord. And a hand went up. Now when you observe that because of the infraction against God, the place where you choose not to obey and communion with God is broken now would you watch something happen or you observe someone else have a victory or they have a great moment of acknowledgement of who God is, you can't even be a part of it. You have to be pushed away. There's no joy, there's no peace and there's no victory for you personally because there has been some destruction to your personal walk. Husbands, God might be doing something amazing for your heart You might be seeing God answer some prayers. You may be seeing Scripture like you never have before. Prayer comes easy for you, and it's glorious. You might be seeing the glory of Solomon's temple in your own personal life. But the truth is, if you're seeing the glory of Solomon's temple, and you're beholding the great works of God in your own life, but your wife is in a place where she can't see the glory of Solomon's temple, and all she sees is the broken, shattered pieces of what used to be a relationship with God that was right, a relationship with God that was in full communion, and now is fractured, then you can't go forward exploring the glory of Solomon's temple and leave her in the dust and in the ashes of her own personal experience. As leaders, as husbands of the home, we lead our homes to the glory of Solomon's temple. We take our families to the mountaintop experience together. We don't leave one another behind. You say, I can't force her to see. I can't force my husband to come with me and be a part of this. No, but what you can do is be thoughtful in the way that you are living your life in front of them. The way you speak of the glory of Solomon's temple. Because if we're not careful, our flesh will take what God's doing in our life and we'll use it as a pitchfork to poke someone who's down on the ground. Boy, you should have seen what God did today in this service. Praise the Lord. And you know, good and well, they did not feel a thing. They did not see the same glory you experienced. There was no tear coming down their face. There was no hand up because you know them good enough to know that they're struggling, that they're in a battle. They are not seeing the glory of Solomon's temple. They are rebuilding and picking up the broken pieces of either a failure or a place of hurt or a place of pain that's either been caused by themselves or someone else. And you can't simply take them to the temple and set them there to behold it they have to see it for themselves. There are some that are simply broken in fellowship with God. Something happened to the church. I'm just going to be transparent here as a pastor. But something happened to the church. And I, I've yet to hear from any of our brothers and sisters in other countries. But something happened to the church of Jesus Christ. In the United States of America during COVID. Something happened. I believe that for the rest of my life as a pastor, if the Lord tarries, that we'll be dealing with issues and problems that happened, that occurred, that began. The ship sailed starting about March the 10th, 2020. Everything changed forever. And something fractured in a lot of people in March of 2020. A few weeks away from God's house, a few weeks away from God's people, a few weeks away from what feels like a really secure, peaceful place to live. And then all of a sudden you turn on the news and you don't know if you're going to live to see tomorrow. Some did not. And that's what made it worse. The distrust of the government, the distrust of medical experts, the distrust in what you were hearing from local officials, whether you believed it or not, it changed everything about our world. COVID robbed a lot of people of their consistency in their walk of faith with God. And the key to real holiness The key to living a life that pleases God to the uttermost is consistency. And COVID-19, this terrible virus, was the greatest bullet to ever be loaded in Satan's weapon to come against the modern day church. And what's happened is now we have a lot of people who have been to the temple of Solomon. They have seen the glory of God. They've been to the Jubilees next door. They've seen God move in great and mighty ways. They've seen all these wonderful things happen or they've even heard the stories of old and now post-COVID, if you will, they're trying to pick up the pieces of shattered dreams and broken expectations. And at the end of the day, their walk of faith with God is fractured and broken. And they're looking at the temple of their life, the place where God dealt with them and did business with them on a daily basis, and it looks like a ghost town of desolation. That's where the church is parked tonight. Many people will never darken the doors of a church ever again. Because of something that happened when their temple got attacked. And for us as people, we have to be as individuals responsible for the condition of our walk with God. We've got to be honest with ourselves. What did I lose? What did Satan rob me of during covid What problem came out and came to the surface? And before we knew it, 17 weeks had gone by. In a way, we have some sort of spiritual PTSD. We have a post traumatic stress disorder, but it's a post traumatic spiritual disorder that the church has developed post COVID. God's corrected you, you're back in fellowship, you're back in church. You're back out of Babylon, and you're looking back at where you were before COVID. And you're looking at what you're rebuilding, and you're going, is it even worth it? Will I ever know what it is to experience God on that level ever again? Will I ever know what it is to feel that warmth that rushes me? when the Holy Ghost of God comes by my way and speaks to my heart. My phone on a weekly basis, either in a call, a text, an email, an anonymous comment on YouTube or Facebook. People who are standing in the ruins of their temple. And they're going, it used to be glorious. There used to be gold. There used to be life here. But now there's nothing but desolation. And you're looking back on the splendor of having a prayer life, and now when you pray, it feels like a joke. You had a ministry of tears. You remember what it was to have a burden for your family and for your church and for the future, but now, now you're back to building again. You hadn't been in a place like this since before you got saved. And now you're in this rebuilding process of consistency, and you know that you can't trust yourself like you used to be able to trust yourself because of the moment where Satan took advantage of your weakness and your flesh got the best of your emotions. You know what it feels to be right with God, you know what it feels like to be in His presence. You know what it's like to be close to him. You have tasted and you have seen the goodness of God. And you know what it is to walk in the glory with Jesus daily. And now you just aren't there anymore. The good news is his mercy is new every morning. Christ did not die on the cross to simply forgive his children, the chosen of God. He did not simply die just to forgive their sins. It's more than that. When Christ died on the cross, and as you become a son or a daughter, when you become a part of the family of faith at your salvation, God the Holy Ghost comes by your way, convicts you, and shows you Christ for who he is. Not only does He save you and forgive you of, his, of your sins by His blood being applied, but when His blood is applied and the sacrifice that He gives, given as the payment for your death sentence, He also forgives you beyond that and gives you the opportunity to live with a conscience that is clean. A conscience That is clear. God gives you the opportunity to be regenerated and live in the victory of the cross... That I may know him, the fellowship of his sufferings, and the power of resurrection. That Jesus himself, as he becomes anathema, as he becomes damned on the cross by sin itself, and God turns his back, he did not do that to simply forgive you and give you a get out of hell free card. He gave you the opportunity to live in victory with a clean conscience. So that even though there's a place where you say, I messed up, I failed God. God says, when I look at you, you belong to me and all I see is blood. I don't see what you're talking about. I'm God, I know it exists, I know it's there, but I choose not to remember it against you, you belong to me. When Jesus died and forgave you, he forgave you not only of the sin that, he, that you knew you would commit, that you had already committed, but sin that you would commit later in life. That is the compelling argument of the cross. Grace and mercy that you can't even quantify or understand. And instead of picking up the rubble and the ashes of Solomon's temple that has been destroyed by your own actions and your own failure, you need to step back, turn around, claim Christ, and look at His glory and His splendor and say, I'm not going to live in the ruin anymore. In my personal walk, in my personal life, I'm going to live as Christ intended for me to live and have a clean conscience. Give the failure to God. If God's convicted you of something or he's shown you where you did something against him, then give it to him and move on. There's too much to do. There's too many souls that need to hear the good news of Jesus. And if you had a mess up, a mishap, a misstep, if your flesh got in the way of your walk of faith with God during what COVID allowed the church to feel or experience, Then tonight, say, you know, in this personal walk, I want to live in the victory of Christ. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Never get over that verse. Christ's death on the cross was a complete work. And when you're in fellowship with God and you've given him the moment of failure, You're ready to rebuild and move on. Be consistent in your walk. When you're really in communion with God, there's no guilt. There's no shame. Are you hearing the words coming out of my mouth? If you're really in communion with God, there is no guilt. There is no shame. And so if you keep going back to the rubble pile and saying, look what I did. Look look at this. I'm a failure. You are, but Jesus isn't. Take yourself out of the equation and cast yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ. Leonard Ravenhill said, I love the hymns. I love all of them, but there's one that really bothers me. He said, there's a hymn called Near the Cross. Near the cross. Get near the cross. Leonard Ravenhill said, no, 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 don't get near the cross. Get on the cross with Christ. And be crucified and live in his victory that he accomplished. That's a different way of living. That's the confidence, that's the authority that the church must have in 2022. Get out of the rubble pile. Before God saved you, he knew that in 2020 or 2021 or 2022 or last week, that that even though you were going to mess up, Even though that you were going to tell that lie, even though you were going to do whatever it is that you did against your walk with him, he saved you anyway. And even on the day you messed up, he still loved you. And he still called you a son and a daughter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What I'm watching develop in our church and with our teenagers and with our young people, I'm asking God to give me 360 vision. I want to see the periphery. I don't want to be blinded by just what I see right in front of me. I want to see the big picture. That's what I'm praying and asking God to do in my heart. Lord, let me see what our families are dealing with. Let me see what our teenagers are really going up against. And if I was a commander in Patton's 3rd Army and Patton had called me in for a field report, here's what I would say to Patton. General, we've been ambushed. We've been attacked. We've even lost some of our best soldiers. And general, what we need now is for you to come And just simply be with the men. General, if you'll just come to the front line and show yourself and let them see the stars on your collar and on your helmet. If you'll brandish your weapon and just come and say hello to the soldiers, I think they'll be okay. They just need the confidence to know that you are still in charge of this front line. That's what I would say. And what the church of Jesus Christ needs after this attack, after this onslaught, after this assault is for the general to come and show his stars and his wounds and the place where he's already won the victory and the battle and look at the troops that are on the front line and say, Just hold on. Reinforcements are coming. One day we're going to win all of the battle. It'll be over. The church needs authority, the church needs confidence, the church needs unity, and the church needs individuals to have personal walks with God that are consistent in holiness. More than it needs money, and more than it needs exposure. It's personal. And as you grow and as you develop You remember what it is to touch the hot eye of the stove. Hopefully you learn not to touch that eye again. You know what that is? It's maturing. The blister that popped up on your hand, you do not forget the bubble that it made. Nor the scream that you scream. Dad, I have messed up. Again, personal experience. But you know what I learned living at 52 Clinton Avenue when I was six years old, putting groceries up on the counter, and mom was trying to make sweet tea, and I didn't know, and so I'm talking and I lean on that hot eye. Always check the eye. I learned that that day. And you know what happens? As time develops and time goes on, you mature in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You begin to grow in that knowledge. The websites that you used to go to that would cause a fracture in the relationship, you learn that your relationship with him is so vital, so important, that you don't even want to risk going there. The person at work that sometimes is flirtatious, that, that maybe even will go down a line of conversation that that almost excites your flesh, but you know you shouldn't. What it does is you say, you know what, it's not even worth what it could cost me. I'm not gonna have a conversation with that person anymore. And you change and you develop. You go spend $100,000 on a business deal and you find out after your $100,000 is gone that you've bought new equipment and you've rebranded everything. You didn't pray one time and God's offended. You develop and you change. And so that when that tempter Satan comes again, you're able to look him in the face and say, No, I remember what it was for the temple to be in ruins. For my consistency and my walk of faith with God to be broken. I don't want broken fellowship again. Get out of my face. Do you know what that is? That is a form of worship. Verse number nine. Good Lord in heaven, I could pick up this pulpit. The glory of this ladder house. The glory of this ladder house. The glory of this latter house, the new one that's going to be built, the new consistency, the new walk, the new you, the developed you, the more mature you, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. You're going to grow in the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when the devil comes, the temptation comes, you're going to be able to push it back and say no, and God gets glory. And because you know what it is to be in Babylon and be in captivity, and because you know what it is to stand in the ruins of a temple that's been destroyed, you can then look at the new house and say, My God in heaven, look at how much glory is here. Look at all the authority. Look at the life that I have. The liberty to live, the liberty to love, the liberty to worship, the liberty to give, the liberty to be a part. It's freedom. And the liberty that God gives brings glory that is greater. It changes the entire dynamic in the way you live your life. And the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. That is is the key to this whole thing. When you get in a bind spiritually, that you don't use it as an opportunity to pull the lever and flush yourself down the water slide of destruction. But rather you realize what it is. Your flesh, the war, the struggle. And You look at God and you tell him you love him. You see, what will happen is the moment that an infraction comes, um, the moment God is grieved in the way you're living, the conduct of whatever happened. The more you develop, the more you grow, the quicker you'll run back to the Father and tell on yourself, Oh God, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that again. Lord, will you help me? Give me the victory over that. I want to move on. I want to be stronger and I want to live in the greater glory of the latter house. An individual perspective. Secondly, a corporate perspective. Let me drink my water and we'll conduct ourselves in a more calm manner. Praise our Lord. Shame on the devil, he's a liar. The corporate perspective trinity here's the bottom line god has let this congregation see some incredible things you think about all that god go back 60 plus years and look at this church what god's done in poppy's book he talks about when god was telling him to build a church he goes to lunch on Patton Avenue at the s and cafeteria with an evangelist named, who can tell me? James Alexander Stewart. They have lunch up at the s and It's now the melting pot or something like that. What's that called? Is it the melting pot? Somebody know? Yeah, it's a melting pot. It used to be the s and cafeteria. Poppy says that he steps off the curb, and steps into the street of Patton Avenue. And he says as his feet hit the ground, God the Holy Ghost rushes his heart. And he already knows that it's time to build a church. He already knows it's going to be an independent Baptist church. He said that God told him, put in his heart that Trinity should be named Trinity Baptist Church in honor of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And that all three of those personalities of the Trinity would be lifted up by the word of God. That was the initiation of our congregation. And you look at what all God has done in those 60 plus years. Thousands of people, thousands of people have been saved on this property. If you got saved on this property, raise your hand. Well, I did. Got called to preach in that building I got saved in that building. I got married in that building. This has been a wonderful place. Hundreds of men have been called to preach the word of God on this ground. Churches all over the world have been impacted by what God has done here. Scores of women have served God with all of their hearts. They've raised families and honored God. They've carried burdens all the while and doing it for God's glory. We've had jubilees, we've had revivals, we've had tent crusades, we've had big crowds, we've had lots of worship, we've had the choir, the family choir, and all sorts of incredible things that God's allowed us to see. God has given us over 60 years of glory. It's not all been easy, it's not all been without pain or fight or strife. Hasn't always been perfect, but it's been marvelous nonetheless. But if we're not careful, and with all the love in my heart, I'm speaking to those of you that are older than 50. If we're not careful, we'll be just like those Israelites. Those that have seen the first house in her former glory, in her first glory. we will get discouraged working on this house. The current generation is different. Our world has changed. The days of Andy Griffith do not exist anymore. You have to lock your door at night. Barney has to wear a body cam. Before long, they'll take his revolver for real, give him a stick Our world's changed. We're not going to pretend for five minutes that there's not 900 people packed into that little building, Poppy behind the pulpit, adjusting his tie, adjusting his glasses, my granddaddy swinging off the rafters from somewhere, the choir in their beautiful robes. It's a different time. It ain't like it used to be. But God is still the same. Maybe it ain't like it used to be because we ain't the way we used to be. If there's something that's changed and there's two parties involved, then someone's responsible for the change. And it's not God. Who does that leave? It leaves the man I shave in the mirror every morning. God's not changed anything about how he feels towards the church. He's not changed anything about who he is. He can't lie, he's consistent in his dealings, he operates in the same way, he's immovable. And the truth is, yes, what we are reading here, the words that Haggai is saying, and we'll get to this in a moment, it is a millennial prophecy, which means the millennial reign of Christ will see what he is speaking about come to fruition. But in the same nature and in the same character and in the same dealings, the way God works and the way time shifts and the way things move, We may experience exactly what Haggai was saying to the children of Israel, and that's a shaking up. The church may get shaken up. I submit to you, it started shaking and quivering March the 10th, 2020. We've been in a shaking. And yes, it's been painful, and yes, there have been losses, but in the midst of it, God's been good, God's been faithful, and God has remained God every single day. And I believe with all of my heart that before Jesus comes back, before he has the archangel carry out the musical tone that will draw us into that glory, before that happens, I still believe with all of my heart that there will be a harvest of souls desperately searching for something that's real and for the truth. The shaking of this world, the shaking of the zeitgeist, the ebb and flow of what this world is. You see, the world is even starting to admit, this is getting really bad. And what they'll do is reach for things like, well, it's the climate. That's the problem. No, it's not. Well, it's conservative politics and the new Republican Party. That's the problem. No, it's not. Well, it's the liberals that have control. It's their problem. It's their issue. No, it's not. None of those elements make anything better. But at the end of the day, it goes back to what we said this morning. You are living in a world that will never be perfect and that will never know peace until the millennial reign of Christ comes to fruition. When Jesus is on the throne in his rightful place and Satan is in hell for all eternity, never to touch your head again, then everything will be right. Until then, we war on, we fight on. And as the shaking happens, and as the crumbling around us begins, the glory that God will allow this church to see, the souls that will be saved, the people that will come home, the prodigals that got hurt during covid We'll come back and see that the glory of the latter is greater than the former. I still believe that people can get saved in this day and in this hour. I still believe that. I still believe that God is in the business of calling young men to preach and filling them with the Holy Ghost of God. I believe that. I believe that people can still live sold out for God even in 2022 in this generation. I believe it. I believe that God still has a plan and a purpose for his glory, not only for you, but for our church. I refuse to stop believing. I refuse to stop preaching. I refuse to stop praying with tears and a burden. And I refuse to sell out. Because what God has given to us corporately is greater than any treasure or amount of money that any man could ever write on a piece of paper. God has been good. And his glory is abundant. When Jesus took Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, the disciples go with him up to Caesarea Philippi. The multitude is following and Jesus takes them, Olena, to the place where you just stood. The headwaters of the Jordan, the snow melting off of Mount Hermon feeds that water. It's so cold it would make your teeth hurt. And right above that is the most wicked place on earth. And it may be one of the most consequential places in the New Testament for the 2022 church. And it's where Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail. And today as we live our lives, as we go forward for the glory of God, the gates of hell shall still not prevail against the church. The glory of the latter house shall be greater. And lastly... We see the personal perspective, the corporate perspective, but now we see the millennial reality. You can be for certain that it will come. The subjugation of all nations by the Messiah, who is our Supreme Lord and our King, Jesus Christ. And he will set up that kingdom. Where never again we'll know what it is to be in a fractured place in our walk. That's the glory and that's the splendor of heaven is you never have to sin again. You'll never know the taste of disappointment and you'll never know what it is to be out of his presence because the glory of the latter shall be greater than the glory of the first. And there is no glory that we will experience on this earth like the glory that waits for us when we get home to heaven. I don't know where you are tonight in your personal walk. I don't know what your feelings are corporately towards the condition and the state of Trinity Baptist Church. But here's a few things I know, and here's where we'll finish. You've got to pray. Not only for yourself and for your family and for your walk of faith, the consistency, but you need to pray for this church. Not only the leadership, but where we're going, the work that we have to do, the tasks that are before us. We've got to pray. God will lead us, God will guide us, and he will direct us. But we will not have that direction, and we will not have his heart, and we will not have his mind if we do not pray. We must pray. And in the midst of what this world is, the post-Andy Griffith era of Americana, don't get discouraged. Don't give up. God knew that you would be alive in this day and this hour. And he put you here on purpose. He didn't have you born in 1869 or 1910 or 1914. You may think you should have been born then. God knew that you needed to be born now, alive now, an adult now. He has a plan. He has a purpose for you and your family and for this church. And I cannot wait to be home in heaven with those of us that believe can you imagine what the trinity section of heaven's going to look like? Can you imagine who will be there? I, just, I can't get over it. There are some of you, and the truth is, you'll see heaven way before I do, but I'll be right behind you. Life is a vapor. Don't squander one single day and give the devil an inch. You run to Jesus. And ask him tonight to help you. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we worship you for who you are and what you are. Your capability, your capacity, your knowledge, your wisdom, your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, we love you. We thank you that we serve a God that is very capable tonight. God, we ask you that tonight as we assess our own walk of faith, our journey with the Lord. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight under the sound of my voice or worshiping with us online, and Father, they're looking at what they used to have, where they used to be. God, if they're looking back and seeing now that things are fractured and destroyed, they've made a mess of what you've given them. Lord, I pray tonight that they would leave this place with victory and come out of the rubble of Solomon's temple. And Father, they would look forward to the new temple, the new consistency, the new walk. And Father, that you would grow them and that you would mature them. And Father, my prayer for this church, oh God, Lord, my prayer for myself, help me, Lord Jesus, to hate what you hate. God, I want to hate what you hate. I want to hate sin. I want to run from it. I want everything I do and everything I say to be pleasing in your sight. God, I see what's at risk. And I know that this life is short, it's a vapor. And God, I do not want to get to the end and have any regrets for what was accomplished for the cause of Christ. I want to go with all tenacity, with all ferocity, God, I want you to put a fire deep in my bones that'll never go out, that'll never be squelched. God, that you'd keep the fire stoked each and every day. Lord, I pray that my walk of faith, my consistency with you would produce a life as a living sacrifice that pleases Jesus. Lord, may that be the prayer of every man, every woman, every teenager and young adult on this property, that we want to please you. I simply want to please Jesus. I want you to be happy with me. I want you to be proud of me. And I don't want you to look at me with reproach or shame. but I want you to look at me with love and satisfaction. Lord, thank you for an opportunity, God, to develop and to grow. I'm so thankful that you didn't save us just to leave us as a babe on the bottle. Father, you saved us to raise us up to be mighty men and mighty women full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost who consume the meat of your word, who grow, who become strong to withstand the evil of the day, to follow God with all abandon, that no matter what the world says, no matter what the world does, that we will believe God, that we will trust God, and we will follow God. Till there is no breath in our lungs, no beat in our heart, or until Jesus comes. Now tonight, Father, pull some children out of the rubble and let them see that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. Thank you for being faithful to be in God's house hope you have a wonderful week. Please be safe. and Enjoy living a life as a saved person this week. And no matter what comes Monday, Tuesday, Friday, or even Saturday night as you're laying out your church clothes, no matter what comes, you belong to him and he belongs to you. Live in that victory and give him the glory every day. Give the devil some heartburn this week. Claim his promises. Remind the devil where he's going. Be his travel agent. (laughs) Arrange his trip. And say, na-na-boo-boo, I win and you lose. Live in victory, live in confidence, and live in the authority of his word. Good night. God bless you. Go get your children.